2: taking it to a
1: do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZETechShow. My name is Kay Winningall and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Laura Perry and Michael Steindl. Morning Kay, morning Michael.
2: Good morning, Leth.
1: Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Sarah Bice, who is a social scientist and director of research translation at Melbourne School of Government. She's spent much of her career working with communities, corporations, and government affected by mining, oil and gas projects to reduce social impacts and improve policy outcomes. Sarah is co-chair, co-stewardship and risk management for the International Association for Impact Assessment. She has won awards for her academic writing and her book, Responsible Mining, Key Principles for Industry Integrity, has just been released. Congratulations, Sarah, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Kay. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, and no, it's great to be talking to you. I ha- actually have
0: read your book, and it's a, <laughs> I have great. to say it's a really good read. Oh, uh, you and my mom now, Ticket <laughs> yeah. boxes. That's, that's <laughs> terrific. Thank you. Well, it's just
1: very um, fluent, and it's not full of boring facts and although there are a lot of facts that support your um, arguments, So well done.
0: Thank you very much. Yes, there are a lot of facts, but I do have training in journalism and so it was a real oh, no. aim of mine to write this book in a way that would be engaging to readers well beyond the ivory tower of the university because we are going to affect the kinds of change that we need for responsible mining you got to get the information out there and it has to be pre- presented in a way that people can engage with and are interested in and hopefully we can have a big debate about it.
1: Mm, mm, yes, and it's exactly the way it reads. So, Sarah, you were on our show four months ago talking about what social licence is, responsible mining framework and the impact of mining in Australia. Now, in your new book, you cover what's described as a contemporary and erudite analysis of the social dimensions of mining globally and you ask is it possible for minors to be socially responsible and acceptable? Is it? (laughs) (laughs)
0: So this is the question that we're trying to answer We really, when I put out the term responsible mining And it's one that's been floating around now for a few years Kind of alongside social license to operate And you start to think, is this just weasel words? you know, (laughs) Or is this really a noble cause and is it possible? And one of the arguments that I make in the book And probably the foundational argument that propelled the book And that motivated me to write it Is that when we look at contemporary life we know that we do require mined materials. So this morning I just tweeted about the show, and I did that on my smartphone. And to have a smartphone, we need rare earth minerals as well as all types of other mined materials. We couldn't have this building without steel. So I think we have to accept the fact that while we care very much about the environment, while we know that climate change is a major issue, while we know that mining causes negative social impacts and severe environmental degradation, it is also a process that we will continue as a society to need. And so my question is, how can we do this in a more palatable and acceptable way? So is responsible mining possible? I think it has to be. Hmm. Sarah,
2: just to... like to reinforce what Kay said about the writing in the book. um, I can't claim to have read all of it, but um, it is beautiful writing and and much more readable than most uh, ordinary books, let alone academic books. One particular sentence that that really um, jumped out at me in your Chapter 8, there is an optimism inherent to any discussion that dares to combine the terms responsible and mining. (laughs) I thought that was a lovely sentence. So can you break down what what the framework for responsible mining would include for us?
0: Absolutely. And look, it is, it is an optimistic framework, but I think in 21st century mining, we have to have some hope because it's an industry that's going to continue um, regardless of personal opinions about uh, what mining means for the environment. So responsible mining in the framework that I delineate has five components, and those are holistic assessment, which I can talk about in a moment. Community-based agreement-making, which includes free, prior and informed consent and the right of communities to say no to projects. Appropriate boundaries, and that's particularly between mining companies and the governments where they operate. What roles and responsibilities do they take on? And good governance – and that covers everything from the governance at a corporate headquarter and business unit level all the way through to the international governance of the mining industry. Now, those four components are all occurring, we hope, through a process of ethical decision-making.
2: And the, and the holistic assessment
0: Sure. So I work in the area of impact assessment, and I work very closely with the leading international organization for impact assessment, which is surprisingly called the International Association for (laughs) Impact Assessment. (laughs) And we do all types of impact assessment. So what are the effects on the environment of a particular project? How does a project affect health? How does it affect gender relationships, human rights, what are the social impacts. There's a thing called strategic environmental assessment, which uses things like satellite data to look at how large projects may affect the broader ecosystem. So there's a whole suite of impact assessment techniques that are tried and tested. They're very robust, and they are available to us. Holistic assessment means taking as many of those different relevant types of assessment as possible and performing them in a way where the impact assessors themselves work together in teams. Um, At the Melbourne School of Government, we talk a lot about transdisciplinary research. And what we mean is that we bring in all those different angles in such a way that the researchers are working together through the process to give us the full suite of information about a project's potential impacts. At the moment, the way most impact assessments are done, and these are usually required through local or national regulations for mining projects, is that you will have an environmental assessment, you might have a health assessment, you might have a social impact assessment. They tend to be separate documents Mm. living on the shelf next to one another. The other aspect of holistic assessment is that it's seen as dynamic and ongoing. So if we do regulatory impact assessment for mining – It's very much a tick-the-box exercise at the beginning of a mining project. Holistic assessment demands that the assessments are part of an ongoing evaluation and monitoring and also one that involves the community in the collection and the assessment of data.
2: Sounds very like the way the best modern medicine has done where the all the consultants talk and share the information and keep the ongoing review.
0: I think yeah. if we want to understand any complex system or any complex issue, we have now the technological capability to bring together a lot of disparate information in a way that makes more sense than ever before in history. We have access to more information and we have access to more disciplines than we have had in the past and the
2: means to share them easily
0: absolutely and so i think that as we see um, technology advance and as we see different types of assessment begin to speak to one another a bit better you're going to have a more thorough understanding of mining impacts
1: in your book you go through uh, a fair few different case studies to really solidify all the points you're making and then in chapter seven you theorize that the values shift or crisis as catalyst um, is required to institutionalize responsible mining is this what we're seeing is it or are people taking it on their own terms
0: I think there's a bit of both Laura so this is an academic book and a couple of chapters are theoretical chapter seven is one of them and one of the things that I talk about there in a theory that I develop is how particular practices become Institutionalized, And what that means is how they become part of how we do things, the kind of taken-for-grantedness. Mm-hmm. So for responsible mining to become institutionalized, the way I developed that theory was to look at other sectors and industries and other examples of where we've seen substantial cultural change, particularly the adoption of good social performance and good governance practices. And one of the things that came out of that study was that often – Those types of embeddedness, that type of cultural adoption occurs when there's been a big crisis. So the global financial crisis, for example, solidified a lot of things around social performance for us. There was an anticipation when the GFC happened that a lot of companies would inherently draw back on commitments to corporate social responsibility or sustainable development. What we found instead was that, yes, there was some drawback there was some reduction in funding to those areas within corporations but on the whole the commitment was maintained and so that allows us to say these types of practices are definitely becoming institutionalized at least among multinationals Mm -hmm. and if we look at the recent Samarco disaster which was in November last year for BHP Billiton the response to that. So, for those who may not know, um, joint venture in Brazil with Vale, there was a collapse of a dam. Nineteen people were killed. There was mm. massive flooding, a huge mudslide, um, all types of damage, houses wiped out. The and type of thing. Five hundred kilometres
2: downstream, the fish yeah, and
0: the, the... Doce River um, polluted. There's still ongoing investigations, so, you know, we won't get into the debate of of why it happened, but we know that it did happen. Um, And this year, BHP Billiton, actually this Tuesday, in reporting their annual financial results, um, noted a US $2.2 billion um, loss for Samarco. And there's an ongoing lawsuit um, with the Brazilian government. So that's one example and represents a real crisis point. Now, the thing that's quite interesting about that is that BHP Billiton also, rather notoriously, um, was part of Octeti. In Papua New Guinea? Yes, in Mm -hmm. Papua New Guinea. So for those people who don't know, um, pollution of the Fly River uh, in Papua New Guinea, and that at the time was the largest legal suit against a mining company. Now, Samarco is expected to surpass even Octeti. The crisis point, though, has been dealt with extraordinarily differently. So you've got the same company, um, approximately 20 years have passed, and the response this time has been immediate, it's been direct, it's been one in which the company has immediately accepted responsibility. Um, CEO Andrew McKenzie has said things like, we recognize that, that this event will mark the firm for its history. Um, and they have been very active as well in publishing information about what's happening um, and being involved in the recovery process. So very, very different to the Octeti case, where the initial reaction was one of defensiveness uh, and legal legalistic advice. Mm. And from memory,
1: it was 1995 or 1998? Se- seven. 97. Yeah. The Octeti yeah. mine disaster. And the disaster in brazil was late
0: last year yeah november
1: yeah and that sort of um fits in with what you say in your book that you've had a decade i think your book's been done over 12 years you've had a decade at least a decade of research here and um you state that leading mining companies are adopting a more responsible approach to their work and this change is important to them
0: staying into bus- in business how does that work how does that work? So in social performance more generally, there's been a very long-term debate about making the business case for social performance. So regardless of what sector you operate in, um, scholars, practitioners, and company representatives are all very interested to cost social performance to look at it through a risk management lens so if we reduce community conflict or if we reduce environmental degradation can we quantify or monetize that how do we make a business case for doing these good things so over the years a lot of research has been done And that has assisted companies to adopt more social and environmental responsibilities because they have been able, within cultures that prize financial viability, to make arguments for the cost benefits of social and environmental performance. So that's a good start. The other thing that we see happening, and particularly with the growth of social media, and this is another area that I research, is the effects of social media on Corporations and how communities are using social media as a means of advocacy and protest, and that's just one example. But that type of connection of communities, the growth of community voice, the ability of these technologies to allow communities to both make others outside of their communities aware of their situations and also to organize effectively has put an increasing amount of pressure on major multinationals. And cost. Absolutely. So what we see there is that companies can no longer focus on the historical financial viability that would have gotten them through in the past. There is now a cost... A real business cost to social and environmental performance or lack of performance. And that's why I argue in the book that issues of reputation, of legitimacy, a desire by many multinational miners to be what they call a miner of choice within communities is pushing or motivating that kind of, of better social performance and better environmental performance.
1: Mm. And which is what you've seen it with BHP Billiton?
0: You've seen that with BHP Billiton, and you're also seeing it more broadly where – and, and cost-benefit analysis, I have to say, is a bit dangerous because it's not all about quantification, and it's not all about saying let's put a dollar on this because how can you quantify the experience, for example – of a subsistence community that is rapidly introduced to an unwanted cash economy that creates an influx of squatters looking for jobs, that creates dissension in communities over royalties. How can you quantify that?
1: Well, the companies, excuse me, rely on quantifying that but putting a monetary value on it, they unfortunately. do.
0: They do. Unfortunately, one of the things that we are seeing, though, with improvements in impact assessment, but also the gradual but consistent uptake of more concern for social performance, is a growing acceptance within mining companies of discussing value. And discussing value in ways that are meaningful to communities, not just necessarily in terms of monetary value. And that's a really positive shift, but it's one that's occurring very slowly.
2: If I could just throw in here a reminder for, or for those that didn't hear Sarah last time, the whole show was about this concept of social responsibility and and, um, social licence to operate. Um, So go to our podcast for that.
1: Yeah, and um, just for those who have joined in, You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and we're talking to Dr. Sarah Byers from Melbourne University and discussing her new book, Responsible Mining. Just looking back at Brazil again, because I think they are such a fantastic case study, Um, we have seen the most recent response, a a positive one in comparison, Um, but I guess for a country where 80% of their revenue does rely on mining um, and they might not have the social capacity to... uh, you know, maybe engage uh, like a country like Australia does in in organised um, social um, like activism and so forth. Is is there like I mean, you say better mining? Is there really a, a good mining that can
0: can go into the future? I hope that there is. Um, I do describe this as a framework for the 21st century mining industry, and we're only 16 years into the century, so we've got. (laughs) I've allowed a bit of time there for this to develop. The question about Brazil is an excellent question in terms of thinking about the component of responsible mining that refers to appropriate boundaries. So, one of the issues that we see where multinational miners operate in developing countries is that there is a real tension between the money and capability of the mining companies and the capacity and responsibility of local, state, Mm -hmm. and national governments. So Mm -hmm. not just talking about Brazil, but developing countries generally. There is a huge um, tension where companies are able, through their financial weight, to provide services to provide infrastructure to meet community needs that maybe governments do not yet have the capacity to meet and so yeah. it's like a cartel the banana republic kind of uh things which we we would hope not to see um And, you know, there's a lot of tax holidays and things of this nature. So one of the things that I do take on in the book and also that I have written about with my good colleague, Bruce Harvey, who for almost 30 years was the head of global uh, communities and sustainability for Rio Tinto, is the need for clear boundaries between mining companies. And governments um, a very careful balancing of what companies do decide to provide uh, with mindfulness about uh, preventing the abstention of governments and also with mindfulness to the fact that mining is a finite activity and these companies will only be in particular places for a certain amount of time And when they leave, who will maintain infrastructure provided, who will maintain services, whose responsibility should it really be?
2: I guess we've got the same question happening with our coal mines here in Australia, haven't we?
0: Yeah, there is a bit of that going on. So it may not be just a developing country issue. And I think it's certainly... It's one of the key tensions in the development of corporate social performance generally. What is the role of the corporation in today's society, especially when we talk about globalization, um, about the breakdown of national boundaries, about the growth of international organizations? We're seeing a shift in who should take on what responsibilities, whether that be for basic things like infrastructure or health or education services. And so I think for me, the book raises an even broader question about what is the role of a corporation in contemporary society? And what do we want that role to be?
1: And I noticed that um, companies like BHB Billiton, they actually um, put aside 1% of their pre-tax profits for community investment. But they actually... Um, signify that it has to be community investment. It's not environmental investment. So that's an interesting thing.
0: Yeah, so this has grown out of this early discussion around how mining companies should be involved in the communities where they operate and what social performance should look like. I think there's a lot of learnings from that. So again, with Bruce Harvey, uh, he and I have looked at the common practices in the global mining industry around this type of community investment. And one of the things that we've seen is that there has been a creep of mining companies into the kind of social development realm which because of the appropriate boundaries issue I discussed earlier is probably not the best place for the companies to situate themselves. Now this has occurred I think not out of any kind of malice but instead out of an effort to move into a space which has been totally new and quite innovative. So on the one hand we really want mining companies to attend to communities and to do social performance but on the other hand we need to use this early process because this is something now that's been going on since the early 2000s. So really we've got not quite two decades of work and there's a lot of learning to be done. So a lot of this early community investment would be things like traditional donations to local groups, um, a philanthropic kind of model. What we would like to see is a shift towards more what we call corporate citizenship um, where the company is taking on a well-defined and appropriate role within a community and a role which the community has a large say in defining.
2: Sorry, you, you talked before about the optimistic side that even in the GFC, companies didn't totally turn away from um, this sort of social responsibility funding. But your book also cautions that, um, that the social scientists are actually worried that there is a bit of, if you call it fatigue or... or um, Um, turning away from it before um, the optimum results have been achieved. Can you talk to us about that?
0: Yeah, sure. So the first thing I'd like to do in responding to that is to turn the lens on myself and my colleagues a little bit because social scientists also play a role in the development of social and environmental performance because we're often the ones asked to provide the data on which decisions are based. And social science hasn't done the best job of making what I would say uh, a cohesive case about these things. And that was one of the reasons that I was really motivated to write this book because I wanted to draw together um, a range of social scientific approaches to social performance in mining and try to put them into one cohesive framework, which is something that hasn't really been done before so i think as a group of researchers and people who are often asked to provide the data we have some work to do to provide a more collective voice because as we know a collective voice is a powerful one so to to the question though um what is it you know what is it that can be done i think that the key is that we see a shift in international expectation for these responsibilities. So another thing that I write about in the book is the number of frameworks now that are available. Um, Professor David Vogel, who's at UC Berkeley, I believe, he has indicated there are over 300 social performance um, guidelines available to companies so that makes it very difficult as well but it also (laughs) means right like which one do you follow (laughs)
2: it it
0: also means that there is a critical mass of requirements for social performance and i think that's one of the things that we'll see continue in the future uh, to push forward this agenda I'm
1: surprised at the number of international and mining industry standards and frameworks around now.
0: That's very impressive. It It is impressive, but there is also um, a an idea called juridification, which – and I'm going to apologize because this is a very superficial uh, definition of juridification, but that's where – and we've all experienced this, I think, where we've had too many administrative requirements placed upon us. Mm. It's where there are so many frameworks or guidelines or rules that you actually can't attend to them all and Mm. they become a bit, Meaningless. So, one of the concerns with the proliferation of social performance and environmental performance guidelines is that we'll reach a point where nobody knows which ones are best or which ones to respond to. Now, the mining industry got in on this very early. In 2002, they created an initiative called the Mining and Metals for Sustainable Development Initiative, and they did a worldwide review of mining. And from that, came the organization, the International Council for Mining and Metals, of which many major multinational miners are members. My colleague, Daniel Franks, uh, he wrote another book in this series. So this book that we're talking about today, Responsible Mining, is part of a series um, called The Extractive Industries and Sustainable Development. And his book actually goes into the history of the change makers who developed the Mining and Metals for Sustainable Development Initiative, and he goes back and interviews a lot of the people who were involved in that early creation. And I think that's why, in the mining industry, there is less risk of this juridification because there has been now for over a decade a very clear um, guideline and a clear core group of organizations working on what's important. Yeah. And also the monitoring that that they're doing. Absolutely. Mm. And we've got international monitoring as well from groups like Transparency International on Corruption and also initiatives like the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which encourages countries and companies to report both what are paid to government but also what governments pay back to mining and extractive companies.
1: Mm. So they encourage it. But they're also able to get that data.
0: Yeah, so they can get the data. And depending upon the country in which the mining company is operating, increasingly we're seeing EITI be adopted into legislation. So, for example, following the global financial crisis, the U.S. uh, enacted the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Act, which was aimed at these broader corruption issues. But that basically incorporated the EITI. So we're seeing a lot of regulation, too.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sarah, and it's a fascinating read, and um, I wish you all the success with it at the launch next Wednesday.
2: That's right. The um, Melbourne Energy Institute is launching it Wednesday night, so you viewers, as you listeners, are getting a sneak preview. Thanks for your
1: time. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks very much, guys. The Beyond Zero show is broadcast throughout the community radio network and is brought to you by the climate change think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others... You can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week. It's not week. a
0: product, it's a technology.
1: It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension.
0: There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Palm Tadra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests.
1: All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than
2: that. You've got something that's transformational.
1: Solar window in a can.
2: Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action.
1: Taking it to a
2: do-it-yourself level.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.